Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. We're going to talk this morning a bit about James, the epistle of James. And uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, I'm going to call these uh, thoughts passions, friendship, and humility. And I'm going to start by asking a bunch of questions, which I may or may not get around to uh, answering in my other comments. Passions. Are they good or bad? What are your passions? You know what they are? Should you pursue them? Ah, is passionlessness apatheia, as the Stoics called it, this, this life where I am not dominated by my passions, is that really the ideal life, where I just sort of cruise through on an even keel with equanimity? Or is passionlessness maybe a close cousin to that deadly sin of sloth, which is described as a mind state that gives rise to boredom, rancor, apathy, there it is again, and a passive, inert, or sluggish mentation. <clears throat> so passionlessness, is it desirable? Is it the ideal? Or is it kind of a dangerous, lackluster thing that's really a waste of God's gift of life to us? Well, there's some questions about passions. What about friendship? Can you be friends with everybody? And does having some friends mean that other friends are impossible. Like, you have to choose one or the other. Well, why would that be, if you think that's the case? And what does it mean to be a friend of God? Humility. Is it the same as self-contempt? And if not, which I hope you realize it is not, how is it different? Fun question, can you achieve real humility without becoming proud of that fact? And what does it cost to achieve humility? I raise those questions because these are topics that are brought up in our passage, which I'm about to read. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, you ask and then you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We've been going through James here in chapel, so I don't want to spend much time thinking about context here, 
But I do want to acknowledge that we're reading this passage as a portion of a letter, uh, probably not as specifically conditioned as some of Paul's letters to specific churches. James wrote this to, you know, to the church scattered around. But there are general conditions to God's people being widely dispersed. And our section here bears the marks of what is called a diatribe. Now, in our modern use, if anyone does a diatribe or a diatribe, if you prefer, um, it's generally like a bitter denunciation, like it's really an attack. Um, the generic use of diatribe in Scripture isn't focused so much on that as it is on this idea of an energetic conversation with a missing partner. So lots of questions in this passage. Where did this come from? Don't you know? Or do you think? So you've got this missing partner that's going on. It is pretty energetic as well. Maybe some hyperbole in there. Most commentators don't think uh, people reading this letter have actually been killing one another, like murdering and that sort of thing. Uh, and this passage occurs in a longer section that's talking about wisdom, it's talking about submission to God, and all of those things. But we're talking specifically about passions when this opens up. What causes the quarrels and fights? It's your passions and your desires. There are two words here uh, describing these, uh, this, this idea of, of desire, uh, and, and they illustrate, I think, the complexity of what's going on. So the first one uh, that the ESV translates as passions is uh, the word hedone. We can hear hedonistic in there if we, if we listen carefully. It has to do with pleasure, with desire, with enjoyment. And when scripture talks about hedone or passions in this sense, it's usually negative. Certainly is in this passage. But verse 2 says you desire and you don't have, and then that's why you murder. Desire there is not the same word as passion. It's the word epithemeo, and it means to long for or to desire when, when it's used positively, and it can mean then to covet or to lust when it's used negatively. So here is this complexity. This word desire can be good or it can be bad. Let me illustrate. Romans 13, 9, quoting the Ten Commandments, uses this word epithemeo to say, you shall not covet. Jesus uses it when he said that anyone looking at a woman with lustful intent, there's the same word. And earlier in this epistle, James has, said, uh, has, has really said desire is, is, is problematic. James chapter 1, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, not someone else's, his own, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So this kind of passion or desire isn't uh, harmless. It actually causes us to sin, and if we don't check it somehow, James says it, it leads to death. But that's only the negative side of desire. There's also the positive side. Same word in Luke 22, where Jesus says that he has earnestly desired to eat Passover with his disciples. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing sinful there. No death in that at all. 
And 1 Timothy says very approvingly that those who aspire to be bishops or overseers in church, they desire a noble task. So this kind of desire is what we want to monitor. We want to be careful about it. Um, But I think this is often what we mean today when we hear people giving us advice to follow our passions. Uh, They're not talking about the kind of passions that James says causes strife and quarrels. They're talking about legitimate desires that we have. Maybe we're passionate about writing or learning or cooking or soccer or music. We want to monitor these kinds of desires, but we don't want to eliminate them. We we don't want to be uh, people without any goals in life. So we have to hear this carefully and recognize not every desire that we have, every inclination that we have, we have to suppress and just, you know, become a blob. No, but passions are problematic. James says that passions cause quarrels and fights. So similar words, quarrels maybe is more like a a state of war and a fight might be like the individual skirmishes that we have with one another. But they make us pay attention to what others have that we want. This is part of the problem. So when we see other people have what we want, then, then, then here comes the fight. And James says, so you murder and fight and quarrel. And very interestingly, James also observes that we want these things, but we cannot obtain. So... I had a colleague who bravely quoted Matthew Henry as a commentator, so I'm going to do the same. Here it is. Inordinate desires are either totally disappointed or they are not to be appeased and satisfied by obtaining the things desired. We fight in war. We have these passions, James says, but you're not going to get it. It's not going to be satisfying even if you do. So this reminded me that when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, um, we were Christmas shopping, and I saw at the 5 and 10 store, which you don't have anymore, I saw a fiberglass bow with a few arrows. And I just thought that was like the perfect gift. I don't remember. I mean, I often have a problem not knowing what I want, so, but... But that time I did. I really wanted this bow and arrow. Like, I really, 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 really wanted it. And I was so pleased when I saw the package under the tree that seemed like it had the right proportions. And I remember how happy I was that Christmas morning to take my bow and arrow outside and, and discover it wasn't that great. <clears throat> it was kind of fun. But, you know, it really didn't live up to my expectations. Uh, I've had the same feeling about the latest versions of software. Like I could just get, if I could just get this latest version, or if I could just get a faster computer, or maybe a phone that does, you know, everything that it ought to do. Then if I could just get that, then life would be good. I've actually, uh, it's not that I don't desire these things anymore, but but my expectations have been lowered by experience. They don't bring ultimate satisfaction. (sighs) That's a problem. 
We see other people getting things we want, we're unhappy, and then when we do get them, they don't satisfy. Uh, Peter warns us in 1 Peter that another problem with passions is they actually war against our souls. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We have these desires within us that if we give expression to them, they harm our souls. And then the other problem that James points out with our fleshly passions is that they actually cause us to abuse prayer. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. Well, actually, and when you do ask, you ask that you can consume it upon your lusts. So you ask wrongly is, is what he says. And he uses this word kakos, which has many modern expressions as well. You ask wrongly. So the problem is not, by the way, that we ask God. The problem is that we ask God wrongly. Peter David says, God is no magic charm who must help if the proper words are uttered. We, we can't just expect God to, to give us what we want. And this idea of consuming it on our lusts, one scholar summed that up, and, and we can see if it applies or not, that we simply pray to God so that we can eat better meat, drink better drink, and wear better clothes. And we can be sure that prayers of this kind are going to return empty. But it's interesting. James says here, you ask and you don't get, but there are other places in Scripture that suggest, wow, all you need to do is ask. In fact, James, just a couple of paragraphs later, says, hey, by the way, if someone's sick, you all get together, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. Jesus says, ask, and it shall be given to you. So sometimes Scripture gives us these unqualified promises that prayer is going to be answered, and sometimes it explains to us, that there are actually uh, ways to pray properly and improperly and very clearly trying to use God as the source to make all of my passions find expression. That's not a fruitful way to pray. But we ought to ask God for what we need, oughtn't we? I think we ought to, and maybe even for what we want. But if we ask God for what we want so that we can get ahead of our neighbor or so that we can find some expression for our desire, uh, that seems an abuse. But he does go and say, and, and you don't have because you don't ask, what if? What if we earnestly desired what God wants for us? Would he answer those prayers? Uh, chapter 3 of James talks about wisdom that is pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason. If we ask God for that kind of wisdom, won't he answer yes? I love what Paul says in Romans, that the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Could we ask for those things? We should ask God for what we want. We should want what God wants as well. That is, is a happy confluence. 
So those are some thoughts about passion from James. He also has some comments about friendship in verses 4 and 5. And uh, the ESV, as, and many English translations, start out with something like, you adulterous people. Uh, in Greek, I think it's actually one word. Adulteresses. Someone said he's broken off analysis and he's, analysis and he's preaching now. He's calling them names. Uh, one scholar even said this word adulteresses is, is actually a bit vulgar. So, but this is figurative, not literal. Uh, there's a long history in Scripture where God says unfaithfulness to him is like idolatry. And it's feminine uh, because the church collectively is the bride of Christ in the New Testament, uh, not because somehow um, the female side of the race is more adulterous. Adulteresses, he, he bursts out. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So we shouldn't be friendly with our environment like friendship with the world. Uh, we know this isn't the earth or the universe that he's talking about. There's various ways to describe this, but we know this has to do with the values, the systems, the institutions even, that the world and human society has developed. Those that have nothing to do with God or maybe even are opposed to God. And he says, don't you know that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world and that is a very interesting word because it does include this idea, not that it happens that I become a friend of the world, but that I actually desire it. Other, uh, other uh, translations for that word in other contexts even include to determine. So it's kind of like, well, if you decide that you want to be a friend of the world, beware, because this means that you are an enemy of God. And he says, we love both ends, but he says, this can't be a both end. You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. It's either or. And I think I, wanna, I, think I want to assure us that this is ultimately, uh, none of us are perfect friends of God. A few of us are perfect friends of the world, but ultimately we have to choose. What, what are we going after? What friendships are we seeking? Uh, and I want to say that, you know, I, I don't want it to be, I don't want to be, and I don't want you to be neurotic about saying, oh, is that worldly? Should we do that? But I think we want to pay attention and think carefully because anything that makes us uh, an enemy of God is worth avoiding. Would you agree? So we don't want to become enemies of God. So I say worldliness is a many-splendored thing. Worldliness isn't so much about who is doing something, but more about the values being served. So just because Christians are doing something doesn't mean it's godly. Would you agree with this? And just because people of the world are doing something doesn't mean it's wicked. We get this confused. We especially get this confused with people that we, that we scorn and we think, oh man, not like that. 
So we can look around and maybe identify things that people we don't like or scorn uh, or judge are doing and say, well, that's worldly. And praise God, none of that worldliness has got on me. And it ain't gonna neither. Yeah. In, in our heritage, uh, worldliness used to have a lot to do with clothing and entertainment. And it could get a little crazy. Uh, there are tracks that say, you know, like, for example, would you want to be in a bowling alley when Jesus returns? Like, hmm, think about this. Um, my father-in-law, uh, Willard, uh, has a painful story from decades ago where he was asked to preach a, a message on the radio. The radio was being introduced, and uh, this should have been um, 40s maybe, uh, late 40s, early 50s, somewhere in there. Uh, he's just a young man, and he is sort of an up-and-coming preacher, so they gave him this topic at a conference, and uh, he approached it, uh, you know, sort of like, well, this is a technology that can be used for good, or it's a technology that can be used for evil. So we want to use it wisely. There was a, another minister present there for whom that message was the last straw. He told Willard years later that that was the message that sent him out of the conference uh, to seek new affiliation, because clearly this conference had gotten worldly, because they would consider allowing Christians to use the radio. Uh, I think the irony is that uh, today, not so much then, but today we have very many Christian media outlets. And, and to me, uh, many of the messages, certainly not all, but many of the messages on these outlets, they seem worldly to me. But they're coming on Christian radio, so they must be, no, they're not okay. Uh, when I was going to community college, uh, early in our marriage, uh, I found out that there were multiple persons in our area who were more concerned about the mustache that I was wearing than about anything I might be learning that was worldly uh, in that college. I mean, and to be fair, it wasn't that great a mustache. <laughs> but what about, okay, so we're talking about college. When I was your age, uh, Choosing college was highly suspicious as, as a worldly thing to do because it might indicate pride. It might indicate, well, you're just, you just want status. You know, you want to be somebody in town. Or, or, or maybe you're just trying to be sophisticated and, and, and lord it over the rest of us. So choosing college seemed to many uh, like very possibly a worldly decision to make. Now I hear that some these days prefer to skip college and say, we just got to get started with our career. We got to start making money. We got to start getting uh, ourselves established in the world. Well, is that worldly or not? What I want to say is it's not college necessarily or finding a lucrative career necessarily that's worldly. It's the values that we're seeking by going to college or by starting a career that we need to examine. In fact, it's interesting. In Scripture, it is the love of money or the desire for wealth that is uniformly associated with worldliness. 
Jesus even gave a similar ultimatum as James, like you can't be friend of the world, friend of God. Jesus says uh, you can't serve God and money. So when it comes to worldliness, it doesn't matter who's doing what. Just because the world is doing it doesn't mean we have to avoid it. I mean, you know, we, we all, I'm wearing, you know, a worldly shirt here at this moment um, for which we're all grateful. <laughs> but what are the things that we're organizing our life around? What are the values that, that we're pursuing? What are the ideas that consume our attention? Like, what am I really about? I think those are the issues that get back to passions and probably the reason why it's true that friendship with the world is enmity, enmity with God. Verse 6 is uh, actually a quote from the Septuagint version of Proverbs 3.34. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In fact, the proud here is, is the person who's, who's really haughty. Uh, it, the, the Greek includes the word hyper here. So this is someone who's hyper about themselves. And, and Proverbs and James tell us that if you are hyper about yourself, God is actually opposed to you. He forms a battle array against you. So if you want to have God oppose you, then go about as a proud person. But God gives grace to the humble. So to, to be humble is basically to lower myself, not to have contempt for myself, but not to seek status. It means to submit to God and God's plan for my life. And there's another verse in Scripture that says that we are to humble ourselves and then God will lift us up. And I love the, the smart remark that someone made that says, and if we do God's job, if we lift ourselves up, then he'll do ours and he will humiliate us and bring us back down. I want to submit to God's plan. I want to be God's friend I don't want my life to be ruled by my passions. That's the goal for me. Well, in conclusion here, are you experiencing quarrels and strife? As you look at your relationships, are they characterized by these struggles with other people? James tells us that quarrels and strife spring from within. So if we're experiencing this kind of thing, I think we ought to at least ask the question, am I seeking advantage? Am I trying to use these other people to get ahead? I think we want to guard against the passions which cause strife. And don't forget, they also war against our souls. I think it's a good reminder to remember that becoming a friend to this world system means that we become an enemy of God. And I started to write that if we realize this is true, we should repent if necessary. And then I revised it, and I said repent if possible. 
Repentance is a wonderful thing, and we should seek it whenever we have that opportunity. I also say, practice receiving God's grace in true humility. In true humility, come before God, seek his face, seek his plan, seek his values in your life, and we will experience his grace instead of his opposition. And also, thank God that he gives more grace. We need more grace. James affirms he gives more grace. I think that is all I'm going to say. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your great grace. Thank you for these reminders about our passions, about our friendship, and about the wonder of belonging to your gracious covenant. Lord, I pray that you would give us insight into where our desires are things that you affirm and bless and where our desires are things which are warring against our souls and causing us all sorts of problems. Give us the grace to be honest. Give us the courage to seek your face for the things that we need and to trust you for the things that we want. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may go in peace. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.